When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the January 2023 Literature Review Series. So we're discussing featured articles as well as kind of highlighting um uh, articles that focus on specific subspecialties, whether it's ID, CV, neuro, but followed as always by the front of the fridge, a section highlighting the work by our pharmacists. Um, so in case you're curious about the name, right, it's, it's been a while since I've explained it, I think, um, especially about the pharmacists section, where do you put pictures, papers, report cards, and things you're proud of? That's right, the refrigerator, and if it has room, specifically the front of the fridge. So um, it has typically been uh, two guests joining me in the literature review series, but as we start 2023, um, it's going to be myself and another guest um, highlighting these uh, studies that are published throughout the throughout the months. It's a, it's a really fun episode highlighting studies published in January of 2023. So... I, I don't think there's anything else to say, but let's go. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. And I am joined today by Austin Rowe for the January 2023 Literature Review Series. Now, uh, Austin is the current PGY2 critical care pharmacy resident at Johnson City Medical Center in Tennessee, and he received his PharmD from the University of South Carolina and his PGY1 from Memorial Health in Savannah, Georgia. You can find Austin on Twitter at AusAusRoe, R-O-E. Austin, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. So um, you let me, you kind of let me in on a little fact that you play guitar. Now, as somebody who um, is a self-proclaimed guitar hero expert, I always like talking to those who can play real guitar. 
So two part question. Number one, did you love or hate Guitar Hero? And then number two, um, tell the audience what would you say is like your your masterpiece? Or if someone said, hey, you got to play one song for me, like what are you going to? Yeah, I'll say I love playing Guitar Hero. Um, I started with Guitar Hero too, and I had a blast with it. Play that so much. Um, but my go-to like masterpiece song would probably be um, Someone Like You by Adele. I, uh, I like to play fingerstyle guitar so I can play the, uh, the the background music as well as the melodies all on guitar. And I just think it sounds really beautiful and it's fun to play. I love that. I'm just picturing like the song being, being played in my head right now. So that's really cool. And not like, that's not like one of the easy ones that gets, uh, it gets, gets a little complicated as you get into it. Okay. So as we start today for our featured articles, so, you know, normally, right, maybe it's a six-pack, maybe it's the featured five. So today it is entitled The Sexy Seven in honor of Kevin Bedhauser. And uh, if you had a chance to listen, our discussion in the SCCM Farm D Speakers Part 2, um, he mentioned how he loves using the phrase hot and sexy. So this section today is titled the sexy seven, as Austin and I highlight the seven trials from January that stood out to us. Now, Austin is going to be leading the way, um, talking about a highly anticipated study that, pun intended, shock dropped at the 2023 SCCM Congress um, and is aptly named as we record this at the beginning of March. So, Austin, take it away. All right. Thanks, Nick. So this trial is called Early Restrictive or Liberal Fluid Management for Sepsis-Induced Hypotension, also known as the Clovers Trial. And it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines recommend early fluid resuscitation with 30 mLs per kg IV fluid bolus within the first three hours, with additional IV fluid commonly given during the initial resuscitation phase. However, as most of us are aware, this practice is based on low-quality evidence. IV fluids aren't without risk, but the same can be said about vasopressors. So the authors hypothesized that a restrictive fluid strategy during the first 24 hours of the resuscitation for sepsis-induced hypotension would lead to a lower 90-day mortality. So this was a multi-center, randomized, unblinded superiority trial conducted in 60 U.S. hospitals from March 2018 through January 2022. Inclusion, inclusion criteria were adult patients with suspected or confirmed infection broadly defined as the administration or planned administration of antibiotics, and sepsis-induced hypotension, which was defined as systolic blood pressure less than 100 after at least 1,000 mLs of IV fluid. Exclusion criteria were receiving more than three liters of fluid, including pre-hospital EMS fluids, the presence of pulmonary edema or clinical signs of fluid overload, severe volume depletion from non-sepsis causes such as DKA, more than four hours since meeting hypotension criteria, and more than 24 hours since presentation to the hospital. So patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive a restrictive fluid protocol or a liberal fluid protocol. Each group followed that respective protocol for 24 hours. In figure one of the article, it highlights the protocols used for the study, but to briefly summarize, the restrictive fluid protocol stopped IV fluids and used vasopressors to maintain a map greater than or equal to 65, with rescue fluid boluses recommended for specific criteria, which included a map less than 65 while norepinephrine was at 20 micrograms per minute or equivalent of another vasopressor, and lactate greater than four and still rising after two hours of therapy. The liberal fluid protocol recommended an initial 2,000 ml IV infusion of crystalloid, followed by 500 ml fluid boluses based on clinical triggers, 
such as a map less than 65 or a decreased urine output of less than 30 mLs per hour. And you'll notice that the criteria for giving fluid is slightly different in this group, so just keep that in mind. Rescue vasopressors were also allowed in this group. The indications for that included a MAP less than 50, lactate greater than 4, and still rising after two hours of therapy, fluid overload, or more than five liters of IV fluid administered in total. The primary outcome was all-cause 90-day mortality before discharge home. And there were many secondary outcomes, which included 28-day measures of days free from the ventilator, days free from renal replacement therapy, days free from vasopressor use, days out of the ICU, and days out of the hospital. Safety outcomes included the initiation of mechanical ventilation and new onset arrhythmias. And it was determined that 2,320 patients were needed to meet 90% power to detect a difference of 4.5% in the primary outcome. After enrolling 1,563 patients with just over 780 patients in each group, the trial was ended early due to a scheduled interim analysis because an independent data and safety monitoring board found similar outcomes in both groups. The baseline characteristics were similar between groups. Each received a median of about two liters and were randomized to just uh, randomized after just one hour after meeting inclusion criteria. So over a 24-hour period, the median volume administered to the restrictive group was about 1,250 mLs compared to 3,400 mLs for the liberal group. Vasopressor use during the first 24 hours was higher with a longer duration in the restrictive group. 59% for 9.6 hours compared to 37% for 5.4 hours in the liberal group. The primary outcome, death before discharge home by day 90, occurred in 14% of patients in the restrictive group and 14.9% in the liberal group. This difference was not statistically significant. There were no statistically significant differences in any of the secondary or safety outcomes. An interesting finding of this trial was that 500 patients received peripheral vasopressors and there were only three occurrences of extravasation all of which resolved without any clinical intervention or clinical consequence. And this finding provides valuable safety data for the use of peripheral vasopressors. So in conclusion, this was a very well-designed trial that found a fluid-restrictive strategy during the first 24 hours of resuscitation for sepsis-induced hypotension does not reduce mortality by day 90 compared to a liberal fluid strategy. Strengths of this trial include the well-designed protocols for both groups and rapid enrollment into the study to assess that early resuscitation phase. There weren't many limitations of this trial outside of ending early and then subsequently not meeting power. Uh, another limitation could be that the protocols were continued for only 24 hours and a longer duration may have produced different results. My takeaway from this trial is that giving our septic patients IV fluids is not likely to be more harmful than vasopressors, and an optimal management likely utilizes both. Yeah, this is a... Uh, uh I think we've all been waiting on the results of this for a while, but I think unfortunately what it shows is that, right, we probably need personalized care, that that, that the one-size-fits-all bundle um, we know doesn't work for everybody, right? Now, a couple things that I wanted to highlight about this trial. Um, so number one, when you kind of, you know, if it's if you all like me, when a big trial comes out, I'll kind of um, take a look at what some of the other um, big kind of medical websites are looking at it, right? To see what what your colleagues and things are thinking and reading. And um, I, I've seen a lot of uh, posts or critique talking about wanting a third arm, right? That we have a fluid first arm, we have a oppressor first arm. We should have a usual care that does both. We can never be happy in medicine, I don't think, because if we had a three three arm study, everyone would argue that that muddied the results because it confounded by taking some of both. So I, 
I I don't think it, it I think the design of this it was really good and what I didn't know looking into it as well was the amount of um drama I guess that this uh that happened with this study when it was um first recruiting and got approved um so the if you look in the supplementary appendix um in table seven, it describes a change to the fluid liberal protocol. And basically, um, the liberal protocol says you get two liters um, for normalization of blood pressure and heart rate. And what they changed it to is that if after the first liter, your hemodynamics have normalized, you don't necessarily have to give the one liter bolus and you can go just to the 500 ml kind of rescue boluses or like the boluses as needed. And that is all in response to a massive complaint from public citizen, basically they describe themselves as the, we are the people's advocates that um, filed a request to the Office of Human Research Protections talking about how they didn't think the trial complied with federal regulations or ethical principles. I think the cool thing about that is in today's world, I think we've all heard the stories of research gone wrong in early days and Although I don't necessarily agree with the description of describing the study participants as guinea pigs, as some of the um, headlines from NPR or New York Times might have said, but I, I think that they brought really good points and it changed the protocol and things. And so um, I like the idea of um, this public record, people acting on it and seeing this all play out in one of the biggest studies in critical care that a lot of us have been kind of waiting for. So um, I thought that was really really interesting. And the, the last kind of point for me is like my probably ultimate message with this is maybe achieving a normalized blood pressure and systemic perfusion, maybe just achieving that is more important than how we do it, relatively speaking. So we, we shall see, I think whatever way, whatever your kind of bias was going into this, I feel like you will probably maintain the same based on the results of, of this study, but a really, really good analysis, um, Austin there. Now we've been focusing, we're going to stay in the vasoactive world, but we are going to vasodilate instead of vasoconstrict. So the, the first sexy article, um, that I'm going to talk about is the high dose scape study. Um, now, this may be a new term to some, right? And this is looking at the, the safety and efficacy of high-dose nitroglycerin infusions in sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema, or SCAPE. Um, and this was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now, SCAPE may be a new term to some, especially those who, who don't practice a whole lot in the emergency department. But basically, SCAPE is when acute blood pressure elevations, and we're talking like 200s to 250s, even higher, they can manifest as acute heart failure and pulmonary edema. Um, now, of course, we know IV nitroglycerin is a vasodilator, but at those lower doses, right, when we're titrating to chest pain, we're starting at five, 10, what have you, um, it's exclusively venodilator until you get to those higher doses, right, about 100 mics per minute or higher. And that's when you start getting that um, arterial dilation. Now, the American College of Emergency Physicians, they recommend IV nitrates and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, right, i.e. BiPAP for... Um, Escape, right, for acute hypoxic respiratory failure with dyspnea. Now, very little data exists, right? This is basically outdone from like a four-person case series out of the University of Vermont. Um, so this kind of descriptive single-center study features pharmacists from the University of Maryland, and they helped to look at characteristics and outcomes of patients who received high-dose nitroglycerin, which they defined as a greater than or equal to 100 mics per minute in treating scape in adult patients. 
So the respiratory distress was was as noted by the treating MD. So it's subjective, right? So if we're thinking pragmatic real world, that's how, right? That's what happens when you go into the room and evaluate, right? They subjectively help determine some of those things. So respiratory distress and their systolic blood pressure had to be equal or greater than 160 millimeters of mercury. Now, no, there was no dosing protocol. So dosing practices vary but I would say that's probably, that's pretty similar to what my real world experience when using this drug is. You know, I have some docs who are pushing to give one and two milligram IV boluses. And then meanwhile, some I have to bargain just to start it at a hundred, right? When we start it. So, you know, dosing practices may vary. Um, and I think that's, you know, uh, what this study reflected is that, you know, there's not a complete agreed upon dosing strategy. So they looked at 67 patients. And when you look at those uh, patients, uh, they were predominantly male and predominantly um, black. So 63% uh, male and 84% black. And that over half had HEFREF and approximately a third had ESRD. Um, most patients received either sublingual nitro, right? You put that in as you're setting up the drip and things, uh, or a 0.1 to 0.2 uh, IV bolus. Uh, the median nitroglycerin dose is about 100 mics per minute with the peak median being 200 in the first hour. So nice doses there. Um, and almost three-fourths of the patients received uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And when you look at it, it started immediately, right? It started at time zero because these are the patients that are so sick and crashing, the respiratory therapist is meeting you in the room, right? Or you're calling them the moment you see this patient. Um, and... It shows that loop diuretics were given in just under kind of 60% of patients. And the this study shows to me the importance of high-dose nitrates because high-dose nitrates compared to high-dose nitrates as combination therapy with loop diuretics or with like ACEs or ARBs, they had a similar percent decrease in systolic blood pressure and only 4% or only a 4% rate of hypotension. So no, re, no real clear relationship on that development of AKI and the use of high dose um, nitro, but that was the consistent thing between groups, right? Now, the authors do note that um, inherently the patients in the combo group are going to have a higher presenting blood pressure, which makes sense, right? You're going to throw more things at them the higher their blood pressure is. You'd want to be more aggressive in those times. And there are, of course, limitations here, but this is the largest study describing the use of high-dose nitro uh, for sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema and can really help us kind of characterize and further um, get good research targets to figure out maybe how we should be dosing, um, how long should it be continued, when do we need to have our peak uh, dose of nitro, all those types of things. Um, so really cool study. I have the ED um, from our, our crab colleagues over in Maryland. Now, uh, Austin is going to talk about a popular study um, on the Pharmacy of Dose podcast because when you, by the time you're hearing this, there will be, I think, three episodes. This will be the third episode talking about it. So this is clearly one that a lot of people are interested in. Um, so Austin, go ahead and transform us with your second trial. All right. So this article is called the effect of torsamide versus furosemide after discharge on all-cause mortality in patients hospitalized with heart failure, also known as the TRANSFORM HF trial. And this trial was published in JAMA. So furosemide is the most commonly used loop diuretic for heart failure. However, some data suggests potential benefits of torsamide compared to furosemide. For example, torsamide has a higher and more consistent bioavailability compared to furosemide. Also, there are some uh, beneficial effects on myocard uh, myocardial fibrosis, aldosterone production, sympathetic activation, ventricular remodeling, and natriuretic peptides. 
So several small studies and meta-analyses have shown a potential benefit of torsemide over furosemide, but an adequately powered clinical trial was needed to officially recommend torsemide over furosemide. This trial sought to assess whether a strategy of torsemide compared to furosemide on hospital discharge would result in a lower risk of death among patients with heart failure regardless of the ejection fraction. This was a multi-center, open-label, pragmatic, randomized trial in U.S. hospitals. Inclusion criteria were adult patients admitted with heart failure and an ejection fraction of 40% or less within 24 months or an elevated natriuretic peptide level during the index hospitalization regardless of the ejection fraction and also anticipated long-term outpatient use of loop diuretics. Exclusion criteria were patients with end-stage kidney disease, heart transplant, or an LVAD. Patients were recruited during hospitalization with heart failure and randomized one-to-one to receive either torsemide or furosemide prior discharge, and the dose and frequency was determined by the treating clinician. The trial was event-driven and was designed to continue until at least 721 primary endpoints occurred, and that would help them meet 85% power. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality assessed in the time-to-event analysis. Secondary outcomes include all-cause mortality or all-cause hospitalization at 12 months, and then total hospitalizations over 12 months. 2,859 patients were enrolled, and 747 primary outcomes occurred. The average age was about 65 in both groups, and the left ventricular ejection fraction was less than 40 in about 70% of patients in both groups. About 67% of patients in both groups had prior loop diuretic usage, with furosemide being the most common agent. Use of guideline-directed medical therapy was equal between groups, and of note, only about 6% of patients were on SGLT2 inhibitors. The primary outcome, all-cause mortality, occurred in 26.1% of patients in the torsemide group and 26.2% in the furosemide group, with a p-value of 0.76, not statistically significant. All-cause mortality or all-cause hospitalization occurred in 47.3% in the torsemide group and 49.3% in the furosemide group, and that has a ratio of 0.92, and 95% confidence interval was 0.83 to 1.02, which was not statistically significant. And there were 940 hospitalizations in the torsemide group and 987 in the furosemide group, also not significant. So in conclusion, this trial was it found that torsemide did not result in lower mortality or fewer hospitalizations compared to furosemide. And despite mechanistic studies, observational studies, and meta-analyses that suggested a benefit with torsemide, this study did not demonstrate any treatment benefit over furosemide. My takeaway from this trial is that furosemide should probably be used first in those patients, and torsemide may still have a role later on in the course for diuretic resistance. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting... Um study and kind of findings, right? So after you kind of read this, this study, do you think we should, like, should we be switching patients oral loop diuretic regimens, like based on this study, in your opinion? In my opinion, I, I don't think there's enough evidence to, I mean, you know, when uh, efficacy and safety are equal, which is kind of what this trial found, then cost is kind of the, the yep. thing you look at next and furosemide is simply cheaper. So yep. I'd probably stick with furosemide. That's yeah, I com- I completely agree. And the 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 other big note you kind of mentioned it is just the sheer uh, low percentage of people on right the SGLT two inhibitors right get that um, guideline directed therapy going um, you know sooner rather than later. And this study shows right that uh, we still have some some ways to go there. Um, but a uh, a really cool study uh, out of uh, JAMA out of JAMA. So. We're going to stay in the cardiology world here, 
but this is a much different side of cardiology. Um, so inception is a study from the Netherlands looking at early extracorporeal CPR for refractory out of hospital cardiac arrest. Now, what is extracorporeal CPR, you may ask, and it is the implantation of veno-arterial extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or place them on VA ECMO, when standard CPR and ACLS has not produced ROSC, right? So now you look to do this in patients when you think the cause can be reversible, right? We need this, tat we need this over every CVICU just because we can doesn't mean we should. Um, so where did this come from? So we have the arrest trial um, in, that was published in Lancet in 2020. That was a phase two randomized study from the University of Minnesota. And this looked at out of hospital cardiac arrest patients with refractory VFib. They defined as they got three plus shocks with EMS, and they were randomly assigned to ACLS or eCPR. Now, um, this 30-person uh, study um, was actually terminated early after survival to hospital discharge was 7% versus 43% in the eCPR group. So, Obviously, that's a, a massive change and a massive increase um, between them. So that is in 2020. Now, we also have the uh, Prague uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest trial that was published in JAMA in 2022. And it was a single-center randomized trial in, you guessed it, Prague. Uh, this was out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. They're randomized to either eCPR upon arrival or standard ACLS management. But this trial was stopped early as well, but it was actually stopped for futility. They stopped just before their planned enrollment of 285 as they found no difference in the primary outcome, which was 180-day survival with good neurologic outcome. So two trials, very different results. Hence, the inception study out of the Netherlands in New England Journal of Medicine. Now, this was adult patients who are less than 70 years old with a witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They got bystander BLS, i.e. CPR, and initially a shockable rhythm, right? So all the patients had similar pre-hospital characteristics and treatments. Now of note, when you look in the supplementary appendix, right, they enrolled during COVID. So they kind of broke down what their enrollment period was. And they paused during the first COVID wave and some others paused during the second COVID wave, um, but some others didn't. And then, so that's, so there are gaps um, in months and things in, of enrollment and obviously a global pandemic will do that. So um, the most common reason for exclusion was age. They were, they were greater than 70 or they had a non-shockable rhythm initially. So the primary outcome was 30 day survival with a favorable neurologic outcome. And they enrolled 134 patients and they found no difference in the primary outcome, which was uh, 20% of the 30-day survival with favorable neurologic outcome in the eCPR group versus 16% in the ACLS group. Look, there's lots of lots of questions here like about this study, right? But I'd argue that the best data, if we have three trials, are the two that show similar rates of survival, right? The inception in Prague out of hospital cardiac arrest study. So um, I'm in no means an expert on who or, or when we should cannulate for VA ECMO, but... Um, I think there's more and more evidence showing that, you know, unless you really have something reversible that it, you know, your outcomes might not be um, different than uh, our standard ACLS.
Now, Austin, I learned a fun fact. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. So if you need to call like uh, an emergency services in the Netherlands, it's not 911. It's another three-person number. Do you know what that number is? I have no idea. I'm going to give you a guess. Uh, I'm going to say 119. <laughs> wow. That was actually really close. Nope. This is the R&B classic group 112. Yep. So thank you, supplementary appendix. So if you're in the Netherlands and things go wrong, uh, now we know what to do. So interesting kind of study looking at our resuscitation in those patients who had um, witnessed out of hospital cardiac arrest. Um, So we've been living in the cardiac vasoactive world. So Austin, kind of bring us, bring us back into the more general world of medicine here. All right. So up next, we have um, an article called Aspirin or Low Molecular Weight Heparin for Thromboprophylaxis After a Fracture. And this is also known as the Prevent Clot Trial. And it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So venous thromboembolism or VTE is a serious and potentially fatal complication after orthopedic trauma. And VTE prophylaxis is widely utilized to reduce that risk. A cheap oral option for prophylaxis is desirable considering that anoxaparin, a subcutaneous injection, is commonly used. Before this trial, a previous and smaller RCT with a very similar patient population was performed that compared aspirin to anoxaparin and found no difference in the composite outcome of bleeding complications, BTE, surgical site infections, and 90-day mortality. However, that previous RCT was limited in that it wasn't powered to detect differences in the components of that composite outcome. So this new trial was performed to see if they could find a difference in 90-day mortality when comparing aspirin to anoxaparin in patients with a fracture. So this was a pragmatic multi-center randomized non-inferiority trial, and it was designed with the perspective of a hospital VTE policy and was therefore unblinded. And this trial included adult patients with an extremity fracture that was treated operatively or a fracture of the pelvis that was either treated operatively or non-operatively. And of note, fractures of the hand or foot were not included. The exclusion criteria include presentation to the hospital more than 48 hours after the injury if uh, they received more than three doses of VTE prophylaxis before enrollment into the trial history of BTE within the past six months, and indication for long-term anticoagulation prior to enrollment. Of note, patients on long-term antiplatelets were not excluded, and that included patients on P2Y12 inhibitors, as well as aspirin 81 milligrams daily. Patients were then randomized to receive aspirin 81 milligrams twice daily, or anoxaparin 30 milligrams twice daily, and aspirin was dosed twice daily to try to balance the probability of adherence with anoxaparin. VTE prophylaxis could end at hospital discharge or continue on discharge according to each hospital's own protocol, given there's a lack of consensus on the appropriate duration of treatment. The primary outcome, as I mentioned before, was death from any cause at day 90. Some notable secondary outcomes include uh, safety outcomes, include bleeding events, wound complications, and surgical site infections. And it was determined that 12,200 patients were needed to provide 90%, 95% power with a non-inferiority margin of 0.75% in the primary outcome. So they enrolled 12,211 patients. The median injury severity score was nine in each group. And just as a refresher, the injury severity score is a research tool that's used to predict morbidity and mortality and trauma. Higher values correlate to higher severity. And a score of 15 is used to determine major or polytrauma. So the most common fractures were to a lower extremity only, and that was about 67% in each group. About 8% of patients were taking aspirin and 1% were taking other antiplatelets prior to their injury. Around 90% of patients were prescribed VTE prophylaxis on discharge with a median duration of 21 days 
and that was similar between both groups. Inpatient protocol adherence was 94.7% in the aspirin group and 96.9% in the oxaparin group, which I thought was kind of interesting because one of the theories behind this trial is that the oral route of administration would be easier than subcutaneous. Um, However, the adherence was lower in the aspirin group. Uh, My thought is maybe this this could be explained by patients missing a dose due to some post-op nausea. Um, Other than that, I'm not really sure. But Anyway, moving on to the results, the primary outcome, death by day 90, occurred in 0.78% of patients in the aspirin group and 0.73% of patients in the anoxaparin group, which met statistical significance for non-inferiority. The incidence of pulmonary embolism was the same in both groups at 1.49%. DVTs occurred in 2.51% in the aspirin group and 1.71% in the anoxaparin group, which was not statistically significant. And also, there were no differences in bleeding complications. So this trial was a uh, large trial that found aspirin 81 milligrams twice daily was non-inferior to an oxaparin 30 milligrams twice daily for the prevention of death at day 90 in patients with a fracture. Some important points to consider is that the incidence of DVT was numerically higher in the aspirin group, which could still be an important outcome, although it didn't reach statistical significance. Also, these patients were fairly low risk for VTE and not severely injured, which does limit the generalizability of these results. So my takeaway from this trial is that aspirin can be considered in patients admitted for a fracture with a low BTE risk. However, I would not recommend it over anoxaparin in some of our higher risk patients or those with more severe injuries. I feel like here, uh, I have to say I'm like, I need to uh, give penance and say I'm sorry for, um, it's not like I would ever say this to an orthopedic surgeon, but whenever I would see the 81 milligram twice daily as DVT prophylaxis and I would just chuckle um underneath uh turns out um they probably know more than me about medicine uh pgy1 nick uh did not know that um but i do so this is an interesting study you pointed out all the limitations um but i think one of the biggest evidence of you know maybe in selected patients we can avoid um giving those sub q injections and having everyone's belly look like um you know their little brother was beating them up um, so that's kind of, uh, I'm sure all the, the patients with, uh, upcoming, um, who, uh, you know, have fractures or things like that are going to be very excited about possibly the, uh, idea of avoiding uh, low molecular weight heparin. Um, all right, Austin, hang tight. We got two more trials for, uh, the sexy seven here. So, um, the first is talking about the brain. So the the study that I wanted to highlight is it's actually a pre-planned sub-analysis of the Synapse ICU trial. So it was now this this uh, sub-analysis is actually looking at treatments for intracranial hypertension in acute brain injured patients. And this is published in Intensive Care Medicine. Now, what is the Synapse ICU study, you may ask? So this was a multi-center kind of prospective observational international cohort study that described ICP interventions and monitoring in acute brain injured patients, right? TBI, subarachnoid, intracranial hemorrhage. Um, And this was during their first ICU week in 146 different ICUs in 42 countries. And what this Synapse ICU trial found was the wide variability in monitoring and management of ICPs. So this kind of subgroup analysis, it looked to further characterize and describe therapeutic approaches for intracranial hypertension management using this, they call it a therapy intensive level scale or the TIL scale. So 
They broke down into kind of three um, categories. So no to basic means your scale is zero to one. And um, what this encompasses is you're doing your standard prevention that your, your protocol, your team, your unit should have in place, but you're not necessarily doing anything extra. Mild to moderate, you are mild, you're increasing that sedation. You might be increasing your vasopressor dosage to, to bring up your CPP. Maybe we're giving a dose of, of hypertonic saline. And then when you get into moderate, that's where you're giving higher, more aggressive doses. You might be doing mild uh, hypothermia, CSF drainage, et cetera. And then uh, grade four is extreme. And this is when uh, you're doing like, you know, uh, decompressive craniotomies and things like that. So uh, they broke down into those three. And to me, one of the things that stood out is it highlights what we do in extreme treatments. And um, I think anybody that's uh, treated a lot of these patients or, or, you know, done things like, you know, barbiturate comas or things, right? There's just zero data on a lot of that stuff. So having this cohort of patients that we have some of this descriptive um, information about what was happening um, is actually uh, really interesting and probably very helpful to help guide future research targets in right the sickest of our sick patients. And so they included just over 2,000 patients. Um, and what they found was that um, extreme cases during that first week, it was about 13% of patients, whereas, um, 71% of patients got that mild to moderate treatment. And then, you know, kind of our basic standard prevention was used in, in the remaining amounts. And, um, what they found was that those who got to the extreme levels, right, where we were actively treating, they were younger, they had less comorbidities, they more frequently had an ISP monitor, right? All things that make sense, right? You're gonna be more aggressive, with those patients. And what they found in these extreme treatments is that um, on day one, they started with like a barbiturate coma, 35% did hypocapnia. And then by day three or seven, if you're still in the extreme category, almost everyone had done a decompressive crania at this time. So um, the other interesting thing is if you had um, mild symptoms on day one, most of the time you didn't require treatment escalation. And those who who ended up passing away in the study, they typically had a higher rate of moderate and extreme treatments, especially in the beginning. Um, now, interesting findings was that there was a higher mortality in those who were in the no to basic group compared to the other groups, but no necessarily difference in favorable neurologic outcomes kind of brings into mind maybe using those hyperosmolar agents maybe a little more frequently, right? Unclear. Um, the extreme group, they had a lower mortality, um, but no necessarily difference in positive neurologic outcomes. So it's just one of the biggest descriptive data sets on international patients or international practices regarding patients with acute brain injury. Um, so just kind of really interesting to, to kind of learn what we're doing across, across the globe um, with these acute brain injured patients. And then we're going to round out with something that uh, strikes a nerve to some, uh, which is the use of sodium bicarb for acidosis. So specifically, this is a post hoc analysis of the bicar ICU trial. And what this analysis is looking at, it's looking at long-term outcomes of ICU patients who had severe metabolic acidosis. Now, this was published in Critical Care Medicine. Quick reminder, bicar ICU, multi-site French study, they randomized patients to either get bicarb to keep their pH uh, normal, right, greater than 7.3, or placebo. And they found no difference in the primary composite and outcome of 28-day mortality or and the presence of at least one organ failure. But what the researchers did find was that in the pre-specified subgroup of patients who had AKI on arrival, 
that you had a lower mortality and composite primary outcome with bicarb. So fast forward, this kind of subgroup analysis published in, in CCM looked to see if treatment with sodium bicarb helped improve the health-related quality of life in patients who had metabolic acidosis. So this was assessed via separate surveys and forms that were self-reported. Um, so 62 patients ultimately got included from that initial study group. And there was no difference between the groups, um, whether they got treatment with bicarb or not, if they survived through um, ICU discharge. But it highlights the challenges that these patients face, including chronic fatigue, poor emotional well-being in both groups, impaired mobility, difficult with usual activities. So that the need for thinking about these patients more than when they're just in the ICU. And this study uh, clearly highlights that with a five-year survival of about 30%. So kind of highlights the need and emphasis for post-ICU care. Okay, so our sexy seven or the featured articles for January are done. Now, Austin, we're going to have you kind of lead off our, our subgroup. Um, and we're going to take a realm, this is a kind of a decent heart month, but we're going to... Uh, we're going to go into the cardiac uh, section. Don't go breaking my heart. So Austin, take it away. All right. So for the first cardiac trial we have here, this is called progression of atrial fibrillation after cryoablation or drug therapy. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So atrial fibrillation progresses from paroxysmal to persistent over time due to electrical and structural remodeling of the heart. And previous results from an early AF clinical trial showed that initial treatment of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation with cryoablation compared to an antiarrhythmic drug therapy was associated with lower rates of recurrent atrial tachyarrhythmia during their one-year follow-up period. So the main objective of this follow-up analysis was to evaluate the effect of the cryoablation versus that rhythm control drug therapy on progression to persistent atrial fibrillation after three years as assessed by an implantable continuous rhythm monitor. So this was a multi-center, open-label, randomized trial conducted in Canada and this trial included adult patients with symptomatic paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and excluded patients with a history of daily use of class 1 or class 3 antiarrhythmic drugs. Patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to that initial strategy of either cryoablation or antiarrhythmic drug therapy and were then followed for three years. And the primary outcome was to assess that first occurrence of persistent AFib. Secondary outcomes include the total arrhythmia burden, quality of life, healthcare utilization, and serious adverse events. There were 303 patients enrolled, and baseline characteristics were similar between the groups. The median duration of AFib before enrollment was one year in both groups. And when looking at the initial drugs used in the antiarrhythmic drug group, 65% were flecainide, 13% sodalol, 8% propafenone, 7% amiodarone, and then 7% dronetarone. So by the end of that three-year follow-up period, progression to persistent AFib occurred in 1.9% in the ablation group, in 7.4% in the drug group, which was statistically significant. Hospitalizations and recurrent of any atrial tachyarrhythmia were also lower in the ablation group and also statistically significant. And then quality of life scores across the board were also greater and more patients reported no symptoms in the ablation group. So in conclusion, in this three-year follow-up of the early AF trial, it was found that an initial strategy of cryoablation was associated with a lower incidence of persistent AFib. The study also supports the practice of early cryoablation over antiarrhythmic drug therapy in patients with, with AFib. 
yeah, the, the safety differences stand out to me, right? In terms of adverse effects, almost a quarter, right? Almost one in four patients in the rhythm group with, with just over uh, 10% in the ablation group, right? One in four versus one to 10. That's huge. Um, and they, the authors make a note, cryoablation may be potentially disease modifying, right? Based on all those things you mentioned of reducing hospitalization, risk of recurrence. Um, so really cool, cool info here to maybe help patients get off of, of some of the medicines that were, uh, that we're kind of talking about and uh, highlighting. Um, now, Austin, go ahead and highlight a a great article written by a extremely famous uh, fluid researcher that, if you're a listener of the pod, should be no stranger. Yes, yeah, this was a, a really interesting review article. It was called "The Prediction of Fluid Responsiveness" and published in Intensive Care Medicine. So uh, the goal of administering IV fluids is to increase cardiac output and ultimately tissue oxygenation. And the relationship between cardiac output and preload has a variable slope, so trying to predict that fluid responsiveness is desirable to help us avoid fluid overload. One of the earliest methods is the fluid challenge, which involves administering 300 to 500 mLs of fluid and assessing if cardiac output increased by at least 15%. Method is simple, but it runs the risk of fluid overload if it's repeated in non-responsive patients. A variation of the fluid challenge is the mini fluid challenge, which is just administering 100 to 150 mLs and then assessing if uh, there's any responsiveness, which this one runs the lower risk of fluid accumulation. So there are also methods to assess fluid responsiveness without administering any fluids at all. Two methods take advantage of the heart and lung interactions, but these carry several limitations and require that patients are mechanically ventilated. There's also a passive leg raise, which is a very simple test that just involves raising the patient's legs while they are laying flat, and that transfers about 300 mLs of blood to, from the lower extremities. So the authors point out that many of these tests were validated using precise cardiac output measurements. However, cardiac output is invasive and expensive, and we don't routinely use it. Subsequent validation studies have been used to uh, use non-invasive monitoring techniques, such as capnography, bioreactants, or changes in pulse pressure variation. So the take-home message from this article is that fluids can be harmful or beneficial, and assessing the fluid responsiveness is important to ensure that fluids are only given when needed. And I'd recommend reading this article just to get a better understanding of these various fluid responsive tests. And you know what? Um, I think, too, you know, we, we a lot of people have to read from things we talk about here. I think there's not a whole lot of reading compared to all the other studies that we're going to talk about, because um, the... The thing is, they have a really, really cool visual of all the things, right, that Austin, that you just talked about. Um, and the other thing that I really like is they have a timeline that talks about how we've known, you know, the differences. When did we talk about them and things? Um, so really cool. I mean, Xavier Monet, he's like, it's it's got to be the biggest flex of all time when like half the studies you, you reference in the study you just published on have you as an author. Um, so it's got to be a, a, a great time for him. Um, all right. A great review. Completely agree. Austin, go ahead and close us out in the, uh, don't go breaking my heart, our cardiac section. So this trial is called impact of enterococcus fecalis endocarditis treatment on risk of relapse. And it was published in clinical infectious diseases. Enterococcal endocarditis has a significantly higher relapse rate compared to other pathogens. And guidelines recommend the use of ampicillin plus either ceftriaxone or gentamicin for efecalis endocarditis. And the purpose of this study was to investigate the impact of the various antibiotic regimens on the risk of relapse for efecalis endocarditis. 
This was a multi-center observational retrospective study conducted in France. Patients were included if they fulfilled the modified Duke criteria for defi- uh, definite infective endocarditis with efecalis. And because this study was conducted in French hospitals, IV amoxicillin was used instead of ampicillin. Patients were grouped into those that received amoxicillin plus chentamicin, amoxicillin plus ceftriaxone, or a sequential combination of these two regimens. Patients that received a sequential combination received an average of about four days of gentamicin and were then switched to ceftriaxone. And amoxicillin monotherapy and non-amoxicillin-based regimens were also included, but these represented a very small portion of patients. Of note, a power calculation was not performed. There were a total of 279 patients that were included. Baseline characteristics were similar between groups with the exception of heart failure, chronic kidney disease, and an indication for valve surgery but not being performed, uh, being more common in the amoxicillin ceftriaxone group compared to the other amoxicillin-based regimens. Relapse within one year occurred in 10.8% of patients in the GENT combination group, 10.5% in the ceftriaxone combo group, and 3.2% in that sequential combination group, which was not statistically significant. One year, all-cause mortality was also uh, 18.1% in the GENT group, 32.5% in the ceftriaxone group, and 25.4% in the sequential combination group. The ceftriaxone group had a statistically significant increase in mortality compared to the gentamicin group in a univariate analysis, but interestingly, when they did a multivariate analysis, it was no longer significant. Um, one theory behind this, uh, why this might be explained, is that there's a higher incidence of heart failures, EKD, and an indication for valve surgery without being performed in those that received ceftriaxone. And the rest of the outcomes were not statistically significant. So in conclusion, this was a pretty thorough observational retrospective study that found the choice of gentamicin or ceftriaxone in combination with amoxicillin did not have an impact on relapse rates. This study should be interpreted with some caution given the retrospective design and differences in baseline characteristics and the lack of power. But my takeaway from this trial is that the relapse rates are high across the board for ethacalis endocarditis, and this trial helps provide more evidence for the use of our ampicillin-based combination regimens. Yeah, it's a really good point to highlight because that was one of my huge takeaways as well. So, you know, the risk of relapse is almost 10%. So the importance of getting these things right um, in these patients is really important. Um, I also like that this trial did a sequential analysis, right? Because in the real world, a lot of patients get amp and gent, then we transition to AMP and ceftriaxone eventually, right? Um, and this trial reflected that, right? When they did kind of the sequential treatment. Um, and so... And that also showed that us doing that doesn't necessarily produce worse outcomes either, right? All, all good information, all good things um, to help us uh, help improve our care of these, of these patients. Um, so really cool uh, study that you're highlighting, the uh, Ephemer study group from uh, France. And kind of rounding out the uh, don't go break in my heart section, I want to highlight two brief studies. Um, the first is a great study concept that investigated the relationship between uh, catecholamine vasopressor dose and mortality um, out of Cleveland featuring a a couple PharmDs um, in the author list. So what they did was they created a, or they uh, had a multivariable logistic regression analysis, and they found that even after adjusting for baseline characteristics, that there is a significant association between maximum norepinephrine equivalent dose in the first 24 hours and in hospital mortality. 
So they, the, the mortality in this group was was 39%, right? So these patients are sick, right? We just highlighted the Clover's trial that was around 15. Um, and, you know, maybe the mortality doesn't emphasize how sick they were, right? Almost uh, 13 or 14% of patients were on one or more mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine, right? So that's uh, it's not 0.1, that is 1.0. Um, and... In the discussion, the authors highlight that only 25% of patients received two plus vasopressors in their first 24 hours. So you have these patients that might have been on one mic per kilo per minute of norepinephrine. And the question is, would we benefit from any type of multimodal vasopressors, right? My bias would be yes, um, but I think there's you know, more, more studies and more things to come from that perspective. Um, and the last study, we've kind of had a lot of clarity in recent years. Oh, quick Quick uh, back jump to the previous study uh, that was published in Chest. If you were uh, if you were looking into that, uh, okay. And rounding us out, so we've had a lot of clarity in recent years about transfusion targets in critical care. Uh, we even had the Trix three trial that looked at PRBC administration in cardiac surgery. But I, to help drill down specifically in patients with acute myocardial infarction, investigators in the Journal of the American Heart Association they performed a systematic review, meta analysis, and trial sequential analysis, and there, they included three RCTs that evaluated restrictive versus liberal transfusion strategies. So that's the reality, the CRIT, and the uh, aforementioned um, TRIX3 study. So when you pool together the patients who had ACS from those trials, the authors found that liberal transfusion strategies actually may decrease the risk for long-term major adverse cardiovascular events and MI. Now, Keeping in mind, those studies did have a high risk of bias. You can't blind these pa the participants, et cetera. Um, interesting data in the CV world, um, but we made it out. I don't think my heart is broken. It is intact, but that's, we'll, uh, we'll see what happens because I'm certainly lost in my mind in the next section where I'm going to highlight some neuro studies here and talk about the brain. And I want to start off with um, an important study. Now, I've gone on record, Pharmacetidose is officially a Tenecteplace Tenecte podcast, and a group of pharmacists from Portland, Oregon, published more evidence for this thrombolytic. So, they compared the door-to-needle time of Tenecteplace versus Altaplace, and they actually found no difference, right? They, but they all got them in less than in an hour, right? 59 versus 55 minutes in a 52-patient cohort. So... I think this speaks to the strength of their ED pharmacist crew because I promise you, if you randomized either physicians or nurses to both of these groups, there would be a statistically significant difference. Um, and maybe for centers who don't have bedside preparation, because I know that's not necessarily at all places, I'd be willing to bet we'd see a statistically significant change. So we shall see. Um, I will, if, if, Anyone is aware of studies refuting my thoughts, let me know. But that is something that I think. Um, and so this was a, uh, that was a study kind of published in the uh, American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Um, staying in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, I know it's a hot month um, for this journal. Um, it's actually a letter, the next highlight. And it was actually in response to an awesome study uh, from ED pharmacists in Chicago. And what this group highlighted 
was that when pharmacists are involved with the care of status epilepticus patients, the time to AED administration improved almost by half, right? 26 versus 51 minutes. And patients received a higher, more appropriate initial lorazepam dose, right? It was not two milligrams for everybody. Um, Now, the reply was from a group of three physicians that highlighted the work, the pharmacists, specifically the pharmacy residents at the University of Kentucky and what they do to for patients with status epilepticus. So it appears, this is from the, the article, so um, our Lex Vegas colleagues can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but it looks like they have an alert system where pharmacy residents are paged and then they go to the bedside to help assist in management, whether it's verification, bedside mixing, follow up with delivery from central pharmacy. And the time to administration of the first dose was just as impressively improved. So uh, 22 versus 58, right? Where the previous one was 26 to 51. So I chose to highlight this because so many of these letters, if you read them, they just choose to nitpick someone else's work, especially if they feature writers from other disciplines, right? Like you have a group of pharmacists that, that highlighted those works. You have a group of physicians responding a lot of times it is not in, in a sense that this, that this letter was. Um, and I love that this is basically a love letter to the work that the pharmacists have done as it relates to this. So uh, kudos to those authors. Um, and rounding out the lost in my mind neurology section is actually an article detailing why hospitalized patients can lose their mind uh, because they can have challenges with sleeping and they focus specifically on blood draws. So the researchers looked at blood draws in ward patients. So get a load of this. They looked at over 5.6 million samples from almost 80,000 patients. I am, I'm lost in that data. Um, but when they, when they broke it down, what they found was that 39% of these labs were drawn from 4 to 7 a.m. And 25% uh, was before 6 a.m. Um, and what they found was that actually... As the study went on, more and more patients were getting those early labs. So, a, for those listening, I think one of the one of the things that you can do to help improve the care of the patients in your unit um, is to help figure out what the lab mnemonics mean. Right? What is daily versus Q twenty four versus QAM? What do those times correlate to? Because I promise you, there are different times. And once you figure out what times those are, you can then change labs. And you know, if the if the patient doesn't need three thirty labs, guess what? Let's not wake them up at three thirty. Um, you know, we can promote sleep um, by you know, it, we don't need to wake up patients if no one's going to look at those labs until nine or 10 anyway. So um, a really cool idea uh, for those to uh, help improve sleep because we uh, know how important that is. All right. So Austin, come on back now because I think we got the fever. And uh, I think the only, the only prescription is an ID subsection. So Austin, take it away. All right. So to start out this ID subsection, we're going to uh, review the colistin monotherapy versus combination therapy for carbapenem-resistant organisms, also known as the OVERCOME trial, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine Evidence. So pneumonia and bloodstream infections due to extensively drug-resistant organisms such as Acinobacter bomani are associated with a high mortality rate and therapeutic options remain limited. Despite the approval of many novel agents, these agents are not universally available and not active against all carbapenem-resistant organisms. Colistin has in vitro synergy when combined with carbapenems, and it was hypothesized that combination therapy would be superior to colistin monotherapy, even in carbapenem-resistant organisms. So 
this was a multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that occurred October 2012 through August 2020, and it was conducted at hospitals within the U.S. as well as international sites. This trial included a patient uh, with pneumonia or bloodstream infections caused by extensively drug-resistant Acinetobacter bomani, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Carbapenem-resistant Enterobacterales, and all had to have susceptibility to colistin. The primary outcome was 28-day all-cause mortality. There were a total of 423 patients that were included, and baseline characteristics were similar between groups. The most common organism isolated was Acinetobacter, and that was found in about 78% of patients in both groups. 28-day mortality occurred in 43% in the colistin monotherapy group and 37% in the colistin plus carbapenem group, which was not statistically significant. And there were no statistically significant differences in any of the secondary or safety outcomes. And despite in vitro data suggesting a synergy between colistin and carbapenems, this trial found no difference between the monotherapy with colistin and colistin plus meropenem in 28-day mortality. The primary organism in this trial, again, was Acinobacter, so this really limits the generalizability to any other pathogens. And uh, to kind of bring the guidelines into this, per the IDSA guidelines, polymyxins can be considered for carbapenem-resistant Acinobacter infections, although ampicillin solbactam is preferred even when susceptibility has not been demonstrated. And when you have moderate to severe infections, combination therapy with two agents is recommended. However, based on this trial, as well as another RCT, um, the guidelines recommend against the use of colistin plus meropenem. So my takeaway from this trial in the context of those guidelines is that combination therapy with a backbone of ampicillin solbactam is preferred. Yeah, a couple a couple things that I wanted to highlight because I thought this was a really a really cool study. Um, they designed this because of the lack of availability of novel antimicrobials globally, but colistin is still kind of widely available, right? So that was a lot of the the thought process behind this, and then. The, the other note with the drugs is that they switching from that imipenem to miropenem once miropenem became generic and it became a little more widely available. Now of note, they make, they make mention that there were no differences in rates of clinical failures as they kind of um, go in and split the carbapenem group. Um, yeah, you know, like I think who knows what the potential positive effect would be of this combination therapy if patients have CRE or pseudomonas. So, you know, maybe we've closed the door on, on acinetobacter, you know, combination therapy here with this regimen, but yeah, I, I don't know about, about some of those other, some of those other nasty gram negatives. So speaking of, of nasty bacteria, Let's uh, let's shift the battery and let's go from uh, gram negative to gram positive, um, and let's talk about uh, some antibiotics for MRSA. So this next trial we have here is called vancomycin plus ceftriaxone for persistent methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, and this article was published in Pharmacotherapy. So vancomycin or daptomycin is recommended for MRSA bacteremia. But treatment failure and subsequent progression into persistent bacteremia is becoming more common. Vancomycin plus ceftriaxone has in vitro synergistic activity and is a potential option for salvage therapy. So this study sought to evaluate the effectiveness and safety of vancomycin plus ceftriaxone for persistent MRSA bacteremia. This was a single-center retrospective cohort study without a comparator group, so it's just more of a descriptive study. And this study included adult patients with blood cultures positive for MRSA for at least 72 hours who received vancomycin monotherapy initially and then transitioned to vancomycin plus ceftriaxone. 
And the authors note that this is a general approach from their ID specialists who are treating persistent MRSA bacteremia. Patients were excluded if they received any other antibiotics with MRSA activity within 72 hours of that combination therapy initiation. And the primary outcome was time to bacteremia clearance post-sectaroline initiation. There were a total of 30 patients that were included. And the most common exclusion criteria was that the patient received um, both antibiotics without having persistent MRSA bacteremia. The MIC for vancomycin in, was one in all the MRSA isolates, and the median AUC was 528. The median time to MRSA bacteremia clearance post-sectaroline initiation was 2.6 days, and microbiological cure was reported in 97% of patients. Despite this short time to bacteremia clearance, 90-day mortality was still pretty high at 27%. However, readmission for MRSA bacteremia occurred in only 7% of patients. So in conclusion, this is a retrospective cohort study that found time to bacteremia clearance was 2.6 days post-sectaroline initiation in those treated with vancomycin for persistent MRSA bacteremia. Uh, I think this trial is very important as data uh, are limited regarding salvage therapy in general. Um, my takeaway from this trial is that vancomycin plus ceftaroline is definitely a potential salvage therapy option. However, I think at this time, daptomycin plus ceftaroline seems to have a bit more data would probably be my go-to regimen, at least until we have some more data. And especially on discharge, right? When you have the once daily potentially of, of the DAPTO. I, I love the emphasis and the methods on implementing things we know improve outcomes in Staph aureus bacteremia, like mandatory ID consults and kind of that bundled care, right? Echoes, et cetera. Um, and, and the other thing, if you're, if you're wondering why the most common reason patients were excluded, it was just because they didn't have a bloodstream infection, right? They were using it for maybe pneumonia or something. Um, and then you got to give a shout out to this pharmacy department from uh, New York here. Um, 84% of patients met their target uh, trough goal with a median of four days. So shout out to this group. 84% um, met trough target within four days. That's uh, an impressive, an impressive feat. Um, all right, Austin, close us out because we got a fever. All right, so next we got is an article is called, uh, called Beta-Lactam Target Attainment and Associated Outcomes in Patients with Bloodstream Infections. And this article is published in the International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents. So beta-lactams, as we know, are time-dependent killers, which means their antibacterial activity depends on the time that the free beta-lactam concentration exceeds the minimum inhibitory concentration. Standard beta-lactam doses might be inadequate to achieve optimal pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic targets, especially in our critically ill patients. So therapeutic drug monitoring or TDM may be useful in aiding us to reach these desirable targets. So this study sought to evaluate the impact of early and cumulative beta-lactam PKPD parameters on therapeutic outcomes in gram-negative bloodstream infections. This was a single-center retrospective study, and it included adult patients admitted to the ICU with a positive gram-negative blood culture who received cefepime, meropenem, or piperacillin tazobactam, and they had a beta-lactam concentration that was measured within the first two days of therapy. Patients were excluded if they had endocarditis. And the primary outcome was to evaluate the association between the measured time of free beta-lactam concentration above the MIC and a negative blood culture on day seven. There were a total of 204 patients that were included with 213 episodes of bloodstream infections. Cepapine was used in 81% of patients, meropenem in 15%, and piptazo in 
And um, interestingly, of note, 89% received intermittent infusions, not extended infusions. So just keep that in mind. The percentage of time of free beta-lactam concentration four times above the MIC within 24 hours and within seven days were both positively associated with a higher chance of having a negative blood culture on day seven, and that was statistically significant. Within the first 24 hours, 58% of patients achieved 100% of time of free beta-lactam concentration four times above the MIC, and by day seven, that number was 49%. Um, so again, this was using intermittent infusions. It's really not sure if these same numbers would be achieved if we were using extended infusions. Of note, there was no difference in our 30-day mortality when comparing different PKPD targets, and the time of concentration one times above the MIC was actually not associated with any difference in outcomes. It was really only that four times above the MIC number. So currently, the optimal PKPD target for beta-lactam TDM is unknown, and this trial found that a greater time with concentrations four times above the MIC was associated significantly with a higher chance of a negative blood culture on day seven. Um, there was no difference in mortality with any of the different PKPD targets. However, this trial wasn't designed and powered for that outcome. It's also important to note that all of these patients were admitted to the ICU and received cefepime, so we really can't say that these numbers can be applied to other patient populations. And then um, also, interestingly, safety outcomes, such as cefepime-related neurotoxicity, were not evaluated, so we really can't draw any conclusions there. My takeaway from this trial is that the concentration four times above the MIC might be a reasonable target in our critically ill patients, but really we're going to need more data to assess the safety of that target before we routinely implement that goal. And we're going to put a pin in the cefepime neurotoxicity. Man, Austin, you're a pro. That was that was uh, that's what we call a tease, and you did a great job of that. So we're gonna, I'm going to get to that because there's an awesome study where we where we highlight that. Um, shout out to the University of Florida pharmacists um, who were on this trial. And yeah, the 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 devils in the details. You mentioned it's intermittent infusions. I think that's important. Uh, I think that's really important um, when thinking about this. But right when they when you look at the outcome, they found with impressive p values that targeting that four times above their MIC um, was what we know helped um, improve those outcomes. So right, more to come. We shall see. Um, kind of the last rounding out the the fever discussion is uh, in our ID group. It's a it's a CID uh, focused debate article. And it's asking the question, should linazolid replace clindamycin as the adjunct antimicrobial of choice in group A um, strep uh, necrotizing soft tissue infection and toxic shock syndrome? So some of us have had to do this for two reasons. A, your local resistance rates to clindamycin are out of control, or B, you overcame a clindamycin drug shortage in 2022, right? So between those two groups, I'm guessing that we've probably used more of this as an adjunct therapy recently than we probably did in the past. Now, if we're looking for what has the best evidence, right? The article highlights that's clinda, right? Clindamycin has the most evidence and in a systematic review, it was actually found to reduce mortality. The problem is this systematic review does not take into account that our resistance Two clindamycin of these agents has nearly doubled. It's almost 30% in 2020. And most of the studies in that review showing the positive effect is before we saw all the evidence of increasing resistance. Now, the authors also note 
that linazolid will carry a lower C. diff risk and has anti-MRSA coverage, reducing the need for um, an additional antimicrobial drug, right? Because I think we've, sometimes you've been there when, when you're in the ED and they're on Vang, Cefepime, Flagyl, Clinda. So it's like this could be um, one where, right, they might just need to be on uh, linazolid instead of, right, Vang and Clinda in that example. I'm kind of curious what others are doing. I wouldn't say that I'm fully on the linazolid for everyone trained, um, but I think that there are, there are patients who are certainly prime candidates uh, for that kind of adjunct treatment. All right, so we've made it. We're down to our last subsection. We're going to the front of the fridge, highlighting the awesome work that the pharmacists you all have done um, and published in the month of January 2023. So um, we're actually going to stay in the ID train for at least the first two. Um, and what we're going to start with is a, a narrative review of clinical or pharmacokinetic data for cefazolin in CNS infections. So it's a review of it, and then they also give um, recommendations on what to do and how to manage. And if you uh, look at some of these authors, right, Brandon Bookstaver, Mark Sheets, right, who's who of, of authors in the ID world, so definitely um, a paper that you'd want to look at. Now, when we're thinking of CNS infections, right, and we're thinking of like MSSA, so if you pull the 2004 meningitis guidelines and then the 2017, right, like healthcare associate guidelines, they only mention nafcillin or oxacillin. If you do control F trying to find cefazolin, it is not there. It, it does not list them. And it lists using VANC or desensitization things. So interesting. Now, in this study, right, it's written by pharmacists, so it's really cool that it describes the molecular characteristics, right? What are things we look for? If, can they cross the blood-brain barrier? Is it too big? You know, et cetera. Um, it's a fantastic history lesson, you know, through all of this. Um, but they highlight, we avoid first-generation cephalosporins due to an old study that had five breakthrough cases in um, meningitis, they were all non-MSSA organisms. And that actually was a catalyst to developing the second and third generation cephalosporin. So, wow, what a, what a cool little, little nugget there. Um, now, of course, like a lot of the literature in these types of infections, right, it's limited retrospective observational small sample sizes. But um, kind of the conclusion the authors note is um, Cefazolin is probably safe and effective, but if you're using it for CNS, we might want to bump that dose up to the two grams every six hours um, instead of that two grams every eight hours that we may be more used to. Um, the moving, we're staying in the cephalosporin uh, class and kind of bringing back that discussion that, that Austin teased a little bit. Um, is a, another study from pharmacotherapy um, that is looking at the use of therapeutic drug monitoring to help characterize cefepime-related neurotoxicity. Okay, let's get into it a little bit. So it was a retrospective single-center study, and they wanted to describe the incidence of cefepime-related neurotoxicity, the relationship with drug concentrations and the development, and then investigate clinical factors that put you at risk for developing that. Keep in mind, the hospital does a standard two grams every eight hours as 30 mitten intermittent infusions as their standard dosing. They mention they adjust for renal dysfunction and some patients may have received extended or continuous, but that's their, that's kind of their standard dosing. And 
in all the patients that got cefepime over a two-year period, about 5% of them had cefepime levels. And so when you look at all the patients that had those levels, 22 patients or 4% of that cohort had cefepime-related neurotoxicity. So when they look at the criteria for defining it, right, 60% of that group had all of them, whereas 100% of them had at least two criteria. Um, and the, the thing of note, what they found was that the, the patients who had cefepime-related neurotoxicity, they had a higher incidence of renal dysfunction, right? The credit cleans was almost cut in half. It's like 100 versus 55 milliliters per minute. And they had a higher rate of, of hypertension and diabetes as their past medical history. So what's the most common sign when you're thinking of cefepime-related neurotoxicity? Well, the data here shows it's actually more hypoactive delirium rather than hyperactive because encephalopathy followed by reduced consciousness are the two most common signs. They found that the mean time to onset was about five and a half days, and it took approximately three days for symptom resolution. But once you stop, stop the agent, reduce that dose, it seems like things started to get better. Um, and then uh, for our visual learners, especially those in the neuro world, um, they included a picture of an EEG and the findings that you would expect to see if you had cefepime-related neurotoxicity. I'm not even going to begin to explain, to try to explain that to you. But remember, pharmacotherapy, um, and it is figure two. Um, so a really cool study giving us a lot more details on uh, cefepime-related neurotoxicity. Um, again, I think the argument um, is, keep in mind this is intermittent infusions. So curious what would happen if we did the, the, the lower, more extended interval dosing here. And then rounding out the front of the fridge um, is... Uh, an ACCP white paper that uh, describes clinical practice guideline development and the role of pharmacists. So, I mean, if you look at this, it's a who's who of pharmacists as authors, right? Friend of the pod, Craig Beavers, right? Shout out uh, him in the author list. But they discuss the benefit of clinical practice guidelines, opportunities for improvement, examine the role of pharmacists in the development, dissemination, and implementation of those said guidelines. Now, what I want to highlight in the section on clinical pharmacists, um, the authors kind of emphasized that the pharmacists were encouraged to join or participate in medical associations, share our knowledge at meetings um, to help get involved with these things. The one thing that, I, that, that you got to notice, this starts with your leadership in the hospital world. And if you have the ability to do those things, right, I think a lot of us, your, your clinical responsibilities take up your whole time and you've, you know, a lot of times you don't have three, four, five hours to work on these things during the day. So just kind of keep in mind some of those things in hospital leadership. If you're listening, uh, we need some desk time. Okay. Kind of a fun last section, fun awards. All right. My favorite article title this is great. Viva Las Vegas, but it is not Vegas uh, like the city. It is Vegas as in, this is a poem about the vagal nerve. So very, very good. Um, uh, just kudos to um, Dr. Carlson um, for this uh, poem and JAMA. Honorable mention, Let's Go Green, talking about what we can do for climate change in medicine. Um, okay, wow. Austin, what a, what a heavy hitter month january 2023 was um but greatly appreciate you uh everyone learned so much on the pod from you and uh highlighting your studies so let the listeners know uh remind them how can they get in touch with you on twitter what's your handle 
Yeah, so if y'all want to get in touch with me, my, my Twitter handle is uh, Osro, A-U-S-R-O-E. Um, and I just want to say I'm really happy to be here. This was this was a great time. This was an absolute blast. All right, at Osro, let Austin know how much you enjoyed it. And as always, reach out to me uh, at pharmacy to dose to dose or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. The reference list, along with the full article list that we kind of peruse through, those will all be available. Um, until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.